Dear listener, this episode of Comfortable Place on the Couch was recorded in August of 2020, before the release of the Macarata Project and before the death of Bones Hillman. We will be talking about things in the present tense and the future tense that are perhaps now in the past. We may even be joking around without giving thought to the fact that life is fleeting. We miss you, Bones. We love you. Welcome to Comfortable Place on the Couch, Series 2, a regularly scheduled podcast where three Canadians talk about a band full of Australians and New Zealander bassists to midnight oil fans all around this insert your blue sky mining pun here. My name is Darren Folds, and in the coming months, well, it seems like we're taking a hiatus from B-sides, covers, and demos, and instead we're talking to some of the producers of the albums that we all love so much. Joining me each episode is my good friend and fellow Midnight Oil enthusiast Robin Harbin, and today we have joining us again on the couch, Mr. Warren Livesey. Welcome to the couch. Mr. Livesey. Hi. Good. How are you guys doing? We're doing really well. How are you today? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. Excellent. Warren, when we last talked with you, you were sharing some great stories from your time making diesel and dust with Manit Oil. Today, we're going to hear about some of your experience producing Blue Sky Mining with them. But in between those two albums, what were you up to? What were you producing in the, the 98 to 90 era? Um, 80, 88, oh, yes. 90. The 80, <laughs> yeah, 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 you know. In that period, going backwards. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's probably a few that, a few less known projects that probably would have been lost to my memory, but um, the main the main projects were um, I did my second record with The The, which was called uh, Mind Bomb, which... Um, we were recording for about a year, actually, on and off on that record. Then uh, there was a, an album with a Scottish band, a bunch of Glaswegians called Deacon Blue. My album's called When the World Knows Your Name, which was um, a very successful record, actually. It was number one album in the UK and did well in Europe, but didn't, um, didn't manage to penetrate in America. I don't know if it did anything in Canada either, but... Um, so, yeah, and um, I also did a record with um, Paul Young, who's a soul, yeah. soulful voice singer. That record's called Other Voices. I, did, um, I didn't do all of that record, but um, quite a bit of it. So, yeah, they were the main highlights. Right on. Yeah. Did, did, the, did the success of Diesel and Dust open up new doors to you, or was it just kind of carrying on? With your trajectory anyway? Yeah, sort of, yeah, I think it, you know, it's a bit of both, really. There was an impetus already building up from from uh, The The Infected. That was really the, that was the first album I did that was, you know, a record sort of of note. And I think that really got the ball rolling for me. Um, the thing that Diesel and Dust did was um, 
you know, some significant international success. So, yes, it opened up particularly doors, you know, from other countries um, and, you know, namely America particularly and also Canada too. So, yeah, sort of more work started coming in from around the world. When did you know or when were you asked to be involved with uh, Blue Sky Mining and kind of building on that? Was the success of Diesel and Dust something that added to the excitement or added excitement to the prospect of working on on the new album? Or did you feel uh, like pressure because of the, the incredible success of Diesel and Dust going to work on a new album with the Oils? It's, um, well, the first of all, the, the first part of the question, um, the band just contacted me probably about six months before we did the record to ask me to do the 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 next record and um, that was the first i'd you know heard that i was going to be working with them again um i think uh in in, in terms of excitement um you know recording is an exciting thing for me anyway i'm always sort of you know very happy to to be in a studio working with you know particularly with a you know an exceptional artist as well um so you know it doesn't really sort of add to the excitement probably is a little bit of a pressure because you you kind of know that you know if you follow up a successful record with something that doesn't connect as well doesn't sell as well by a significant amount you know it can do a bit of damage um can mm. do damage to the band and it can do damage to the producers uh, career as well so you know i don't tend, tend not to think about those sorts of things but they are they are there you know yeah hmm. um you mentioned with uh, diesel and dust that the band um sent you some demos of what they were were working with did they send you any demos of what they were working on um with blue sky mining did you kind of know what you'd be working with going into yes uh, the studio yeah. yes yeah um the only difference was that with Diesel, uh, I got several batches of songs, you know, maybe four or five songs at different times over a period of about six months. With um, Blue Sky Mining, they sent me all of the songs at the same time. I guess they'd probably got off the road, gone into writing mode, demoed all of the songs and then sent me um, just one cassette back in those days um, with all of the songs that we recorded plus some songs that we didn't that didn't make it to the record right so like would if you were to estimate like do you figure like there's maybe a surplus of half a dozen songs or something like that yeah probably something like that yeah um, one of the questions I was thinking about later on maybe I maybe it'll fit in right here I guess about three or four years ago, the Oils released um, a bunch of the Blue Sky Mining era demos. And so now now us fans have them. Um, so songs like uh, Can't See Reason, Love Life, Heart Is Nowhere, uh, one of my favorites, Wreckery Road. Did you guys work on those for the album and then decide not to use them? Or were th was that decision made kind of before you started recording the album that some of these demos that maybe we have now weren't going to make it onto it? No, I didn't. I didn't uh, work on those recordings. Um, we may well have um, some of those songs for sure are on the demos. 
-hmm. And um, we probably worked on some of them in pre-production before we decided, you know, what was the what was the batch of songs that we were going to record for the record. I don't know whether it's those demos that I have sure. um, that they released or whether they re-demoed them or, you know, how that went down. Yeah. But, um, but uh, no, I wasn't involved in recording them. We've heard that Blue Sky Mining was recorded using all digital equipment. Is, is that true? And if so, how did it affect the process? And how do you think it affected the sound? Um, yes, it was. It was um, so Rhino, where we recorded, was um, uh, all digi- digital studio. They had two Mitsubishi 32 track digital machines. Um, Diesel and Dust was on digital as well. And you're sort of in the early days of, of, of that sort of multi track recording. So the machines that we recorded diesel on didn't sound that great by modern standard. And the Mitsubishi machines sounded a lot better, a lot warmer. So so that was nice um, to have those machines instead of the, the older Sony machines. And um, yeah, it sort of does make a difference to the recording. I mean, particularly, you know, earlier on there was... You know, I mean, we've got dig- digital recording now that is, you know, very, very similar to to analog recording. You know, it's a very subtle difference. Whereas at that stage, digital had a little bit more of a, a noticeable sort of sonic harshness. Maybe I think is probably the right way to to say it but it, it it's a very subtle difference i mean i don't think a layman would be able to tell um the more significant components of how a record sound is really the choices that you make you know the choices that the musicians make the choices that the producer and engineer make what you're going for the equipment that you use for actual recording, the mics, the amps, the guitars, you know, all of that sort of stuff, that that makes a much bigger difference than mm-hmm. the medium that you record on. Yeah, and uh, Blue Sky Mining was recorded at Rhino Studios, and uh, previously Al- uh, Diesel and Dust was at Albert Studios. How did you find that new space? Uh we, better isolation, bigger rooms, uh, and so on. How how do you think that space affected the recording? Yeah, it was it was a much better studio. I mean, I think I told you last time that um, Alberts was a very limited studio. Um, didn't have particularly great ISO rooms. Was quite small and tight. So we so we worked really hard had to work really hard to try and pull great sounds on that record uh rhino was um a much bigger studio big really big comfortable control room um it had three separate recording areas that sort of laid out in front of you when you were in the control room looking through the control room windows there was sort Mm. of three rooms wrapping around you with the central one being the biggest, which is where we put the drums. And then we had the two ISO rooms either side 
uh, where we had, you know, the two different guitar rigs set up. And then there was even like a couple of small ISO rooms where Pete went when we were doing bed tracks and and a little sort of cubby hole for the bass amp. So yeah, it yeah. was it was pretty it was pretty you know by 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 comparison it was a it was quite a step up. Still a bit of an eighties <laughs> sounding studio to be honest, and the drum room wasn't massive. Um, I've certainly worked in many uh, much better sounding rooms, acoustical spaces, but it was you know night and day in terms of what we'd what we'd had before. When you say '80s sounding studio, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I think <laughs> I think in the I think in the '80s, you know, um, you know, if you think about it, sort of like recording technology was really sort of taking off at that point. And and that that applied to studio design as well. So it started to come in into the seventies, but then and then and then into the eighties, it really exploded. So everything was, you know, very like the acoustical spaces were very hyper designed to try and be absolutely perfect, which in actual reality doesn't necessarily mean best sounding i mean you know to give you an example you know you've got you know, like the led zeppelin john bonham drum sound on when the levee breaks was the drums recorded in the uh in the stair in the stairs you know in the in the sort of entrance hall of this manor house um with mics sort of going up the stairs things like that can really you know they're not acoustically designed, but they can sound really, really great. So, mm-hmm. so, um, so yeah, it still has. I mean, and I think you can hear it. It still has a kind of clinical sort of quality to to the to the sound of the record. Whereas probably my favourite rooms around the world would be not quite so sort of controlled and and uh, pristine. Yeah, so so you're you're saying that uh, rather than blaming that clinical sound on the digital equipment, a lot of it could have had to do just with the rooms uh, and the studio space. Yeah, and and the and also really the taste of the times. I think mm-hmm. you know it was it was recording was was very sort of controlled and neat and tidy. Uh, around around that period you know, in the eighties sort of thing, I mean it still is in you know in some fields of music very very sort of controlled. Mm-hmm. So I think it's I think it's a combination of all of those things really. But I think the the digital equipment would probably be the least responsible for those for that for, you know for that quality. Yeah, were the bed tracks all recorded live again? Uh, in the same way that Diesel and Dust did? That is, uh, what was the bass, the drums, guitars, scratch vocal done live? Or or was this more of a track-by-track process? It was done like that for the majority of the record. There are certain mm-hmm. songs, and I mean, this probably goes for every record I've done with them, that there's, yeah. and, you know, with other people too, that um, not every song benefits from starting it with a sort of live performance so i mean there are songs on this record where they're a little bit more built up there's 
maybe like drum machine in certain sections. So you're sort of starting from you're just sort of layering it more, lay, layering more from a from from the beginning of recording. Maybe working from a drum machine part, and then when we do do drums, we're sort of overdubbing them separately on their own. River Runs Red would be a, a good example of that on this record. Um, Antarctica would also be another one that we would not do a bed track for. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the 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 um, the majority of the record would be a bed track take. Good. Kind of going from the sound of the studio to more of the mood of the album. Um, when I listen to Blue Sky Mining, it sounds more atmospheric and and moody than diesel and dust does and i've got a quote here from uh david frick in his uh review for rolling stone he describes blue sky mining as a dark album for dark times what do you think about that uh description of blue sky mining yeah i think it's i think it's accurate um it's not a night and day difference is it i think it's um it's more of a subtle shift um, but I think certainly, and I mean, I was going to say, you know, when we're talking about the zeitgeist of the times, mm-hmm. um, I think probably Midnight Oil were already onto the darkness that was starting to prevail in the 80s, you know, before then. I mean, even before I worked with them, you know, 1098 has got has got songs that are dealing with that as you know as much as blue sky mining so but yeah i mean definitely there there is a theme that exists uh lyrically i think through that mm-hmm. record that that is um you know re- i guess really sort of starting to look at the the darkness of the power structures, the 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 greed, the the corporate sort of you know domination of the political realm mm-hmm. against humanity, really, and how these sort of come into conflict. So I mean that's a, that's an eighties thing, really, where Reagan in America, Thatcher in the UK, very much politicians that were forcing you know, economical uh, measures over the needs of the people. And so that's a part of of what that album is talking about and, and what Midnight Oil have talked about, you know, in, a, in many different, um, many different mm-hmm. occasions. Robin and I were talking just before we started talking to you about how even he and I sometimes have unfairly characterized blue sky mining as, you know, this slow tempo, uh, maybe a little bit of a downer of an album compared to like some of the rock and roll and type stuff that, that the oils had made. I wonder if maybe just the, the lyrical, like you were just talking about all these heavy themes that were going into the, the lyrical content of the album, if that necessitated more of of that atmospheric, that kind of dark cloud hanging over over the album. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Mm. I mean, the, these things sort of tend to infiltrate into the music, sort of subconsciously, really, more than anything else. I mean, you know, there might be there might be the occasional 
thing where you're doing it deliberately, but you know, songs have an atmosphere about them, a, a particular energy about them that then you know one tends to pick up on when you're recording um, in a in a very natural way, as opposed to a you know a conscious sort of oh let's you know make sure that this record is like this so as it yeah. suits these lyrics. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. um, you know, and I would imagine when they're writing the songs that that is going on as well. So so it's very much a feel you know emotional feeling kind of uh, dynamic than than a decision making process generally speaking right and and then that's why the sort of zeitgeist of the times then sort of you know infiltrates the content of the record as well both the production and also the songwriting and the lyrics and everything else so I'm going to change a little bit uh, here going to talk about Pete for a second um, mm. we've read that Pete wasn't around as much for the recording of this album as he had been for others. And I think I read a story where, uh, Jim had to phone him up and, and tell him that, you know, he really needed to make being in the studio a priority. It seems that perhaps some of the songs don't have quite the energy that Pete might've brought had he been a little bit more present. Was it difficult, or, or did you find that you know Pete wasn't around as much? But was it difficult not having him in the studio consistently, perhaps for this record? Well, a, a little. Um, I mean, I think in terms of energy, you know, everybody in the band has great has great energy and has you know brings a lot of that sort of thing to the process. So, but Pete, you know, is a is a unique individual. He, um, you know, um, so he has. This has a certain dynamic about him as well he was around right at the very beginning when we did the pre-production when we did the initial bed tracks so his energy certainly was a part of how the tracks were conceived at the beginning but then as we got into overdubbing he was off doing you know political work and and uh, all sorts of other bits and pieces um, so it, yeah, it was quite difficult to make sure that we got time with him and to get his sort of input into the general musicality of the record and also to do his, to do his actual, you know, vocals. Um, interestingly, I think he sings a lot better on this record actually than he did on Diesel. Yeah. And his vocal is, is, um, he's, I think he's got better and better actually, you know, over, over the whole time of his career even to this new record where he's singing better than he ever has i think um yeah. so yeah but um you know so that's that's interesting that uh, that he would not be around as much but sing a lot better i mean <laughs> it wasn't like they weren't they, they they hadn't toured before do you know what i mean that they, yeah, they, yeah. They, <laughs> it's not like this was first uh yeah, first rodeo. Rodeo, yeah. yeah they and they've made quite a few records but um so that was good but yeah i mean it's 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 a slightly lower energy record there's not as you know there's not as many fast songs there are there is this sort of darker mood that um you know occupies you know a good portion of the of the record so yeah, and I mean, I think there's a few songs on this record that, where I feel from a production point of view that maybe I could have tried to allow more energy and more sort of band vibe 
get into the recording, hmm. you know, rather than sort of, as I said, the, the sort of more typical 80s thing of like trying to make everything pristine and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, organised. So, yeah, I think, you know, as I listen to it now, that there's a few that I feel like, ah, yeah, this could have just been... I could have let them kind of or encouraged them to let loose a bit more. Yeah, we were uh, entertained and surprised when you volunteered on Diesel and Dust. You know, that Sometimes and Gum Barrel, especially, <laughs> were your least favourite. Uh, do, do you want to talk about what you think your least favourite on Blue Sky Mining is? Well, I think Blue Sky Mining is perhaps a little bit more consistent overall. It sold slightly less, and I and I think probably the key songs on Diesel might be just a bit above Blue Sky Mining, but across the whole of the record, I think it's a, a little bit more consistent for me. Mm-hmm. So I don't really have so much songs that, that don't um, appeal to me as much as, as I've already said, there are a certain song, song Shakers and Movers would be one where I feel like I didn't quite nail the production of that song. Um, hmm. King, King of the Mountain maybe as well could have had a lot more, you know, a bit more energy to it, a bit more, um, a bit more distortion actually, I think. I mean, <laughs> if we did it now, we would have the guitars a little bit less clean and a bit more sort of on the edge. But... Um, I could tell you more what my favourites are on that record, I think. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah. Hear. I mean, I think, um, well, Blue Sky Mining, or Blue Sky Mine as a track, I think is a really great track. Um, one Country is, you know, one of yeah. my favourite mm-hmm. songs that I've worked on with the guys. I also do have a very uh, soft, big soft, personal soft spot for Mountains of Burma. Yeah. The gym mentioned to me recently that he feels it's a bit overblown, which is probably a fair comment. Um, but I kind of like that about, about that song. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> yeah, it's quite, uh, it's quite unique and, um, and uh, original. So yeah, I mean, I, I really like that song. Is he speaking just of how it just like really wells up and then is orchestral and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, he did, did uh, in that conversation. He did actually mention that the strings, um, you know, might might have been one too many things, but <laughs> but <laughs> I kind of like them. So yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a haunting. I I really like it too. It's it it really stands out because of that. Yeah, and I mean, it does get. And I, I mean, that's probably one of the you know situations where I think a song did, was allowed to get a little bit messy and a little bit sort of more overwhelming, which is you know, which is kind of good. I, I kind of like that. I don't think mm-hmm. everything needs to be, you know, so sort of precise. And uh, and I mean, in general, I think my taste in production now is is, is for things to be a, a lot less. A lot less precise and, and more um, more spirited. I want to ask you a little bit about Blue Sky Mine. Just how you approach that. It doesn't sound like 
for Blue Sky Mining as an album, you guys were going in to try to create a whole bunch of singles. Um, nevertheless, Blue Sky Mine, it's got that, that real nice hooky riff played on the guitar and the organ, and the bass plays right into that, that hook rhythm. And even Pete with his hey, 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 hey stuff is emphasizing that. Did you have an idea of, you know, we do need to have a few, I'm going to put them in air quotes, hit singles, <laughs> you know, so were you throwing in like a, a lot of neat stuff into a few songs just to make them catchy and so that you could allow the rest of the album to, to be as authentic as it, as it wanted to be? Well, that song is actually, uh, that song was actually quite a process because it started as a different song. Um, I believe it was called Doubt. And um, the thing that exists from that song, particularly, is the verses, um, musically, not lyrically. Um, but so we cut the bed track of, of this song called Doubt, which incorporated those verses, but with a different chorus. And um, I guess, you know, when we got into overdubbing, we started to feel that the song wasn't quite doing it for us. And I believe I came up with the idea of going into the Motown beat, the, the four, four on the snare, bah, 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 that kind of beat, yeah. typical yeah. Motown beat. We'd actually packed the drums away by that point, and so I grabbed all of the drums, I think, into samplers, into Akai S1000, I think it was at the time, mm -hmm. and I reconstructed the drums that we had in to play that beat, sort of like chopping up, um, you know, how you would, in this day and age, chop up a loop, but I was using yeah. the real drums that we'd actually recorded. And then, and that sort of gave the song a lot more energy um, and uh, got everybody excited. And uh, I think I maybe even came up with the the organ riff as well, but I think Jim played it in the end. Sure. Um, then Martin cool. came up with that guitar part to go along with that. Yeah, so it was like a real sort of collaborative effort to to sort of take the song in a different direction. And then when we'd done that, then, like, basically the sort of top-line melodies were rewritten, the lyrics were rewritten. I think the verse is probably <laughs> still pretty similar melody to the original song. But uh, a lot of that song really, really changed drastically in the recording process. So, and, that, and, and when you're doing that, I mean, it happens sort of in, in smaller uh, ways with almost every song where you sort of... You know, you start shifting off into a different direction, and and that 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 energy that um, yeah gets everybody excited is really where sort of you know the real creative juices start to flow, and people 
people are sort of like firing off ideas from every quarter, you know. Right on. Yeah, so it was uh, <laughs> that was an interesting process, actually. I remember Rob saying to me at one point as I was getting all, you know, doing this beat, he said, why don't we set the drums up and I could, I'll play that beat. <laughs> and I was just like, just hang on a second, Rob, let me, let me just try doing this and then... You know, we'll make sure that it works first. And I think by the time we'd actually done it, we thought, okay, this sounds fine anyway. So let's let's just uh, use it the way that we've constructed it, although it being a little bit of a backwards sort of way of going about things. That's so cool. So, yeah. and then you got Pete's great harmonica as well that comes in. Yeah, and I think you can really tell that energy. You can feel, or at least I can feel that that creative energy of the of the studio process sort of at work. That's fantastic. So now I know who my second favorite drummer in Minnesota Oil is. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing about that is that, um, you know, as you were t- asking me earlier on about the, uh, you know, the success of the previous record, mm-hmm. whether there was a sort of an excitement about that and all that, those sort of questions, I think we probably knew going into the record before that track came along that we maybe were short of that um, beds are burning, let's say. Yeah. Um, we didn't really have a, you know, a great lead-off single. And so when that song was happening, although, again, it wasn't an intellectual decision of like, let's make this the really hooky song that's going <laughs> to yeah. be the first single, but I think the dynamic was sort of there as it was sort of starting to come about. And that Motown beat is always kind of a pretty sort of I don't know just has a has a has a very sort of hooky I don't know yeah. singly kind of vibe to it. So you know that's probably why those there is it is a bit crammed full of kind of hooks and mm-hmm. cool bits and pieces is is because of because of it coming along later in the process and uh, and filling a gap both in terms of energy and also in terms of you know, giving us that that first single. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, yeah. sure. Also about Blue Sky Mine, we noticed that it start on the recording in the studio. We believe it's in C sharp uh, and switches to E flat minor for the choruses. But when the band plays it live, it always seems to be in C, uh, semitone lower. Do you know how that happened? Like guitarists don't usually play in E flat and uh, C sharp, so. Well, I mean, it might be as I say, as I'm saying that the the choruses were written in the studio, and that key change going into the chorus wasn't there originally, so it wasn't uh. it wasn't compensated for. So it might have been that where we ended up with that song from a recording point of view was maybe a bit high for all of the particularly with all the bgs and stuff and also it might be because it is an uncomfortable guitar key that, <laughs> yeah that maybe they decided to bring it down a you know a step yeah to make it easier to play and also to sing but i'm not sure you'd have you know you'd have to speak yeah. to the band but that's what i would guess yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, that original song which, which uh as I say was called Doubt. Uh that was mm. one of Jim's songs, I believe, and he may well have written that on piano, so that might be why it's in that that key originally. 
Yeah. I did actually try and dig out the demo of that and I found it, but unfortunately the mm. cassette wouldn't play. It's it's a, you know, old tape can can kinda of get a bit gunked up so I couldn't actually get it to work. But um Wow. But yeah, from memory it was um a lot more of a low key track when we when we started to record it and so yeah, it changed it changed radically, I think. That song more so than in probably any song that I've done with them in terms of mm. where it started to where it ended up. I'm sure Robin would volunteer to try to get that tape working if you wanted to. <laughs> I even tried the pencil in the cassette thing to oh, yeah. run the wow. tape around and it wouldn't wouldn't you know, it would turn and everything, but when I put it in the machine it the machine would just wouldn't play it. That's a tragedy. <laughs> Stars of Warbidden, great drums. Loved like that long fade out ending with all the fills going on there. Um, I'm just thinking about like the drums in on Blue Sky Mining in general. It, it seems like um, Rob, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I get the impression that he's he's having a little bit more fun and and able to throw in a, a little bit more of of his tricks on this album. Do you think that there was uh, something going on just in, in the headspace of the band or was maybe the recording space at Rhino a little bit better that it, it freed Rob up to get a little bit more busy um, on <laughs> a little bit more busy, <laughs> a little bit more involved in the drums with uh, blue sky mining. How, 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 how was Rob? How was working with Rob? I, I like Rob's stories. Tell me more about Rob. <laughs> well, Rob, Rob is awesome. Rob is just yeah, I mean, he's an awesome guy. He's an awesome drummer. Um, I would imagine the recording space makes a difference to a drummer. You know, particularly what they're hearing back in the headphones is going to, you know, get them excited and maybe maybe has a bit of an effect. Although, you know, I've never really seen Rob sit at the drums and not go full out, yeah. <laughs> um, you know in any circumstance really he's just that kind of drummer but uh, you know and he's got always sort of has that bit of that sort of keith moon kind of element mm -hmm. to his playing yeah you can really really sort of uh, create a lot of energy probably more just the nature of the songs that they that sure. they allow for that i mean you know and that that example particularly that play out um i guess was conceived that the drums could you know, go a bit wild, and um, he was able to have some fun with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the space, the space and the environment was far more comfortable for sure. You know, much bigger, much bigger yeah. space. And um, although, actually, you know, to be honest with you, as I said, that that drum room it wasn't huge. It wasn't like a you know, it wasn't one of the top sort of great sounding drum rooms in the world. It was. It was still, I didn't think it had a particularly high ceiling or anything, so it didn't sound particularly ambient, the drums in right. there. They were still quite clean and dry-ish. Nice. Um, Bedlam Bridge, uh, we were already talking about this, another real moody one, um, but with with real bright spots that I sometimes forget about. Um, mm. In fact, you know, sometimes in when I think about Blue Sky Mining after not having listened to it for a while, I will forget about like the real positive sonic elements on the album. Were there any 
Were there ever any discussions about the songs on the album and how to deliberately bring that that brightness and that up sound to, as David Frick called it, a dark album for dark times? I think the character of the song kind of calls for that dark and light sort of atmosphere. So it, it, it sort of... I think it sort of just happened kind of organically that that's the way mm-hmm. that we shaped the song. Um, yeah, again, I mean, I think it, it, it is that, yeah, what I was saying, it's sort of like the you know, economy versus humanity sort of thing going on in the 80s where the people like the yours, like myself, were sort of yeah, very wary of um, seeing, seeing us sort of lose that um and you've got in that song you've you've got that sort of juxtaposition i think there's uh quite a lot of sort of uh, kind of industrial sounds in that song mm-hmm. so in the sort of rhythm that happens sort of in the earlier part well in the verses particularly in the earlier parts of the song that are you know samples of of like sort of industrial noises and things like that, and then the the thing that happens at the end as well with sort of traffic and it's, so there's these sort of elements mm-hmm. of of kind of industry against um, uplifting sort of elements. So I think it's yeah. I think I mean I don't think we really deliberately tried to do that, but I think that's kind of how it came about that that we felt like it needed those that light and shade to really make the song potent in terms mm-hmm. of what it was trying to say and what it was, you know, what it was trying to capture. Yeah, Darren, that's, is that that bridge and how stands yeah. the city on the yeah, winter's exactly night? It, yeah, yeah, that just is so... It just rises it's, right it's up so there, eh? so bright and uplifting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, and obviously that was, you know, the song was already sort of doing that. So I think when we were recording it, and this would be one where, as I say, I think most of the drums in the verses are are uh, samples, right? You know, not drum, not actual drums, um, sort of programmed, and then live drums come in over the top. There's a couple of songs that do that on this record, actually. Mm. I think that it sort of starts from that and then builds on top of that that base of the track that you've got this sort of this big dynamic shift i think and big dynamics in general you know work very well in recording in certain circumstances you know mm-hmm. you know and so that's one of the things that that i work on a lot when we're doing pre-production is to try and you know where appropriate to try and get that dynamic really built into the way that the song unfolds as it goes along how about how about even approaching an album that way what kind of thought goes into to bringing those highs and lows across the yeah i mean 40, again, 50 minutes yeah again yeah i mean it can exist between songs going from very down to very up as well as with it in, you know internally within a song doing that yeah i think it's very important that you have you don't have everything on the same level you know i think that doesn't really hold people's attention Mm-hmm. You know, I tend I tend to work on that quite a lot. Is to try and get all of those colours and you know shades 
sort of happening during the course of a, of an album. We were talking about uh, sequencing Diesel and Dust last time, and there's a couple segues between songs. Now, on Blue Sky Mining, I think there's even more segues. Uh, one favorite is the traffic noise from the end of Bedlam Bridge going into Forgotten Years. And um, there's like a, a the Doppler effect on the horn. Uh, do you... Do you remember anything about the creation of those or what? Yeah, I mean that it sort of seemed natural that you could take these the horns of cars and then link that with an actual what well, I think is a reverse sort of horn swell, which has a pre-echo on it. So it comes in kind of quieter and then comes in again, and then the second time it comes in, it leads mm-hmm. into forgotten years i'm pretty sure we recorded all of that stuff at the beginning of forgotten years yeah forgotten years doesn't have horns on it but there but that is a but that is a horn a you know a brass um crescendo that comes in right at the end of that section leading into forgotten years did these transitions do they ever give you difficulties when like you're mixing the signal the signals mixing the singles or is it you just have... Some- yeah, we, we you know. I mean, we, the Forgotten Years we knew was probably going to be a single. So we did we we did a mix that didn't have mm. uh, all of that uh, lead-in. So, you know, we've got a yeah. clean start for, for a single version. And then the album version, we've got the, the stuff that is needed for the crossfade. Cool. Now, Mountains of Burma... That has a lot of really neat. I, I don't know what the 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 term for it is. I'll call them like these pre-echoing bits. There's either instrumentation or there's vocals that seem to repeat quietly and then build in volume until the part of the song that they feature in. Um, now we know that Jim loves to play with sound. Are these effects that you and Jim would work on together, or did like the individual songwriters have these planned out ahead of time? They um so yeah that so that that song um so there were some songs where the, the the band demoed actually sort of doing like a proper recording of them um you know rather than I think I said before you know a lot of the a lot of the songs from Diesel the demos were just like a live performance in a rehearsal space um but on this record on some some of the demos they'd actually gone into a studio or maybe jim had put together a studio at that point can't quite remember when that happened um so that so that demo was a bit more uh it, it was recorded properly and um uh and he had he had basically done it you know you do those reverse echoes by turning the tape over so you play the track backwards but you put echo on things and um, so he had a track that he had done on the demo with some backwards echoes uh, on, mm-hmm. and uh, it sounded very, very cool. Um, he was kind of like the uh, the Paul McCartney of the session coming in with all the tape loops. I don't know if you know that story. Yeah, yeah. Worked all, all night and came in with loads of tape loops for the uh, Harrison song. Um, yeah, so he... Um, the idea of that had had existed on the demo, and then we used some of that the those actual echoes that he that he had done, plus 
we recorded some specific things that were going to be key moments um mm -hmm. you know in the in the arrangement where we would specifically want that echo to do because I, th I think his track was kind of random i think he'd probably he'd probably sort of turn the tape over and then just like pushed you know uh just flicked things into the echo yeah. And some of them worked and some of them didn't work. And then, you know, you turn the tape back and then you kind of like some of it's great and some of it's not so good. So, you know, it's a bit of a trial and error kind of thing. And we might have used some of the drums actually from that demo as well, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think because there's two drum kits on that. So I think there's, there's um, yeah, one of the performances I think was the demo performance and then we recorded some drums over the top of that. You can hear that there's sort of like they're panned left and right, these two different drum sounds doing slightly different things. And and then the, the sort of snare changes, like for alternating beats, the pitch of the snare changes. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Cool. One of them's very low. That was triggered, actually, from, uh, you know, it was the normal snare sound, oh. but slowed down and then re-triggered. Cool. So it's... Yeah, he's sort of creating this kind of up and down kind of effect off the snare. I think there's a ride, maybe a ride that we did as a separate thing. I don't know. It was kind of, it was a, con I can't quite remember, but it was a convoluted yeah. sort of process. So yeah, really, yeah, Jim, Jim, Jim gets credit really for for coming up with that idea of doing it and doing it on the demo, and then we we ran with that and uh, and had some fun with it. And I think probably that's why. You know, the track took on that sort of maybe a little bit of a Beatlesy kind of quality. I think mm -hmm. overall, we've heard um, many stories of of Jim just hanging out in the studio and and just geeking out. Yeah, with whoever's producing the album, uh, with with sound and sonics and stuff like that. You must have you must really enjoy working with a guy like oh, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, all the guy, all the guys are you know the. A fantastic bunch of people that you know amongst my best friends and um you know and they're, they're all so creative and they each member has their you know unique uh qualities that they bring to the table it's it's um it's always just an absolute joy to work with them all but yeah jim jim's quite the uh quite the boffin of you know um you know, I mean, he's just, you know, not, he's a superb musician. I mean, not only guitar, but his keyboard playing is fantastic as well. And then he, uh, yeah, he can really get, he really likes to get into the electronic trickery. And, uh, yeah. And he has, you know, he has his own studio now as well. Really, really good studio, actually. Um, yeah, so he, he loves the whole, the whole process, I think, of, and he produces other, you know, he produces artists, as as you know, and yep. so yeah, he has a lot of strings to his bow for sure. Without asking any questions that we're not allowed to ask right now, so you just you just shut me down if I'm not allowed to ask this. <laughs> um, should we be anticipating weird sonic stuff coming up with the Macarata project and the new album as well? <laughs> uh, 
you, you can shut me down. If that's a shut me down, that's okay. That's totally fine. I don't want to abuse our time with you. Yeah. Do I do I give you the the politician's answer to that one? I think. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting, you know, because we actually we recorded two records, as you probably know. Yeah. So we've got this. So Gadigal is from the first release, which um, is all collaborations with First Nations artists, and all the songs, have, you know, are, are about those issues. Um, so that album is is somewhat different um, mm-hmm. to the other album that we recorded, and to Midnight Oil stuff in general because of those yeah. because of those contributions. Um, so yeah, it's yeah, that's about as much as I'm going to say right yeah. now. That's, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Thanks. King of the Mountain has uh, a, a fun rockabilly kind of riff in the second verse, and I guess we're we're thinking that was Martin that played that. that actually, that that reminds me just because we talked about Gadigal Land. That also has some very interesting little guitar moments, like tiny, <laughs> tiny little moments where like Martin gets a little riff and Jim gets a little riff. I don't know if you have anything else you could say about Gadigal Land as far as that kind of leave you wanting more. And then also that's that kind of interplay that we've heard over the years where there are just these fun, tiny moments. They might be one, two, three notes sometimes on the guitar, but just play placed here or there. Just wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah. I mean, some those things can, can be, um, they can come from different places actually sometimes they're just happy accidents just from experimentation that you're recording that you go oh that's great let's let's use that little bit there um sometimes they're more deliberate than that i think i think that bit is martin that you're talking about well there's actually well martin actually is i think playing the main riff and then there's uh like a flurry of notes in the second verse i think that that's jim yeah you know that sort of very fast flurry of notes i'm pretty sure that was jim and that's probably something that he just did on a maybe on the bed track or you know on some take that we just like oh that was great let's let's keep that keep that bit so yeah yeah so i guess sometimes the guys will just play a whole bunch of different little bits and then you'll take what you like out of it yeah 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 i mean yeah you get you get sort of a couple of different things that that happen, and particularly with guitars, but actually can happen with anything. Is where, where you, you know, you're first of all you're sort of you know working on a part, so you so you want to get something that that is locked down, and so you will work on that. You know, maybe the guitarist already has a part, and you sort of finesse it, or maybe you're just sort of trying to come up with with a with an idea that that the track feels like it needs and so you get those sort of things where you're very focused on nailing that particular part and then you get the thing where people are just kind of like jamming and you know um i mean i think the thing that the that that bit that i'm mentioning that just that little flurry of notes in because because of the fact that in those verses it's it's Martin playing the main guitar and I don't think Jim actually has a part for the verse in that song. Mm. Then when we're doing bed tracks, he's just sort of like 
he's not got anything to do. So he'll <laughs> occasionally just sort of like throw something out like that. And, yeah. uh, you know, and that, I mean, that that's, uh, yeah, J- Jim, Jim does a lot of that sort of stuff, really, where he's just... I don't think he can stop himself. Actually, he's just always coming up with ideas, and, and so um, yeah. But so you get the, you know, you get these two different ways of sort of of uh, of approaching what the instruments are going to be playing, and you know, and part of your role as a producer is to be is to be, you know, have your ear open and spot those bits of magic, you know, mm. and and. Uh, and make sure that they don't get erased or lost or forgotten about. Within the right context, those things can really be little, great little moments. Yeah. Just talking about that one little bit, I mean, Martin's totally capable of doing those things as well. Oh, yeah. So it's just, yeah. just in that particular circumstance, it was that way around. You were telling us earlier how uh, One Country is uh, one of your favorite tracks from the album, uh, when we went through the the album a, a few years ago, I had that I had one country picked out as my favorite at the time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a, a a quote here from Pete. He was talking about how it was how it was put together. He says that one country is another pretty fine piece of writing. It summed up a lot of what we were doing. Jim began, then the band took it. By the end, there was all sorts of good things in it. Was one country? another case of like a, a blue sky mining where where things were just kind of being added and hey i've got this idea let's put it on top as you guys were recording it, it as a song it was it was more structured and more together than blue sky mining blue sky mining became a completely different song during the course mm-hmm. of recording it one country was you know as a song was was there from the beginning we knew that we wanted to do those sort of slow builds and then drop backs and then, you know, and then another build. We knew we were going to do that. We knew it was going to have this sort of hypnotic quality. Um, yeah, and of course, Bonesy. Uh, yeah. who, I mean, this is the first album that Bones played on, of course, because he joined sure. the band on the tours prior to this, but wasn't. Uh, wasn't uh, on Diesel and Dust, didn't play on Diesel and Dust, that was Giffo. Um, but yeah, his his vocals are, you know, really sensational at, at, at the end of that song. Certainly, think in terms of the of the parts uh, and the sort of layering was evolved in the studio. But as I say, as a song, it was it was pretty solid. I think from the beginning. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask if you remember uh, if Bones' vocal in One Country was planned early, or if that if that happened in the studio. That high part he has there. Um. Yeah, I think it was up for grabs who was going to sing it. I think they had the I think they had the part. And then they found they found that Bones could sing it an octave higher than everybody else. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, actually Rob Rob's got uh, 
Rob can get yeah. up quite high, but I think yeah, I actually yeah. I think I seem to remember Rob being very insistent that Bones was going to sing it because it would have been between the one, the two of yeah. them. Or I mean, Pete could have sung it as well, but we but we definitely wanted it to be a different voice. You know, Bones sings sings like a bird, as as Rob <laughs> says. Rob always <laughs> says, um, yeah. So yeah, he 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 just uh, it just suited. His voice suited it perfectly, so and he did a great, a great job of doing it as well. So you know, it's quite a magical moment, I think, as as and, you know, and then the build sort of happens underneath it. And, yeah, it's good. I like, I like that track. Now the uh, ending track, Antarctica which, uh, you know, maybe is, is the best deep track on Blue Sky Mine, so speak, with the building, uh, the slow building, the orchestration, swelling, uh, Pete yelling <laughs> in it, and, uh, and that piano ending. So w- was that song all mapped out as well with all those different moments and parts? I don't think so. I think that that would be a song that was sort of built up from scratch you know not 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 a bed track song but something where we started with sampled sounds drum machine uh kind of rhythm rob comes in with live drums uh and near the end of the song and uh yeah there's a lot of experimentation i think in the studio to lock down how that song was um structured um instrumentally Mm -hmm. speaking it's a very um, plaintive sort of song, isn't it? You know, sort of longing for for nature to be to be preserved, and again, you know, again, this sort of industrial military complex, sort of you know, taking over everything, and sort of you know, so many political decisions being made that were destructive to to nature, to um, to humanity as a whole. I mean, the '80s really characterised. I mean, it's still going on now, of course, but I think within the '80s was really where it really took off in a big way. Yeah, you know, and that track obviously is dealing with that. It's also obviously an extension of Arctic World on the previous record, so it was sort of had a bit mm-hmm. of a link to that. I was somewhat conscious of in terms of you know making it. To an extent, part part two of that of that theme yeah. from the previous record. Yeah, you know, it does have sounds of ice breaking away. I think you probably hear in the track in a few places of yeah. a little bit of that sort of um, few sort of industrial noises in the in the um, percussive elements. Um, again, as a song, it was locked down pretty well. I think to begin mm-hmm. with, but we knew we couldn't just sort of put the band in and just have them play that song. It had to be sort of sure. constructed yeah. from the ground up. In those situations, there's a lot of fishing around for for the right parts, the right sounds, the right ideas to create the atmosphere that you're that you're going for. You know, which which is ultimately determined by the subject matter of the song that you're trying to sort of create that emotionality in the in the music to sort of enhance what the uh, what the song's actually about 
Yeah. One of my favorite moments uh, when when the Oils played Toronto in 2017, I believe you were there as well. At the end, uh, they, they actually did uh, Antarctica live and it had the piano. And of course, uh, Jim didn't get faded down. He was able to just keep, he was able to keep playing. And my, my daughter was there who um, is, is a music student, uh, just started her master's today, actually. And, uh, and she was thrilled to be there and also to hear this extended, uh, the, you know, the, the full piano piece <laughs> at the end of that song. Uh, so, so that was a great moment. And I'm also wondering how, how do you choose where to fade that song out? It's kind of like, I want, I want to hear more. Uh, <laughs> and, and we finally did. So, uh, you know, 27 years later. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure how we decided where it ended. I think it was just a feel thing, really, of like how much how much of that do you want so as it doesn't get repetitive and and, yeah. and leaves you wanting more. Um, but it felt like a, a really nice way to end the record. And it's sort of, you know, it's, I mean, it's a completely different musical section to the rest of the song. That That was a neat reveal <laughs> yeah. to, to hear it live there and uh yeah i think i remember actually thinking like well, okay how's he gonna end this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah uh, yeah he had more more to play so i mean he's like that he can he can just sort of sometimes just sort of sit there and just like stuff just comes out of him it's it's magical you know Do you have any other uh, stories or thoughts or things that you want to share about blue sky mining? Are there any like hidden mouth metronomes like there were <laughs> in Diesel and Dust? <laughs> I think there was actually something I wanted to say earlier on. Um, I think there's a, there was sort of an element for me, I guess, with this record. On Diesel, from my point of view as a, as a producer and sort of analyzing it from from this point you know looking back it's like it was very early on in my career you know i just had my first successful record with the the infected and then i did a couple of other records a julian cope record and then i went off to do diesel and dust and um it feels to me like the production of that record is very much like you know this cocky cocky young kid sort of you know new on the blocks with something to prove and so there's a lot of these sort of splashes of production i think on that that are very sort of bold and almost like attracting attention to themselves and i think by the time i got to recording this record i sort of somewhat changed and i think also again there's like you know talk about the sort of just the natural way that one progresses as a, a creative person is that, you know, the the zeitgeist of, of music is changing as well. Um, you know, early 80s, you've got a lot of that sort of production thing, you know, Trevor Horn, all those sort of producers mm -hmm. with these big splashes of production, you know, being sort of key parts of songs. Um, and I think when I, by the time I did this record, I wanted to dial that in a bit I still wanted the record to sound unique and have have moments of really interesting sort of things going on but I wanted it to be 
more in service of the songs and more integrated within the overall sound of the record rather than really sort of jump out at you. So, and I think for the most part, this record is a little bit more subtle from a production mm. standpoint for me, which I kind of prefer about it. So there's still a lot of stuff that's very well sort of thought out and kind of production-y, but it's much more sort of integrated, I think. You know, and I think actually since then as well, I've sort of got even more like that as time has gone on with you not wanting production to to sort of deviate from the from really what's going on in the song mm-hmm. even though they might you know you're obviously still producing and you're still trying to make interesting sounds and make the music that you're recording unique rather than just repetitive of uh, of other you know of other music that you've made um so yeah, so I think yeah, you know, that's a, that's a sort of a difference from my perspective in terms of how I approach that record. That record, it's like as I say, oh yeah, I think the best way of saying it is like not trying to prove my <laughs> prove my worth by by mm-hmm. uh, you know coming up with big production moments all the time and just trying to um, just trying to deliver the songs you know in the best possible way. Yeah, right on. And even though, you know, now, as I said before, even now, I, I still feel like it's uh, the taste then was was for quite slick sort of recording. I think it is a little bit more controlled than Diesel. Just from a production point of view, I think, you know, aside from the songwriting, which is, which is a different thing. That's actually- Warren, thank you very much for spending time with us again today. It's been lovely talking to you and, and hearing these stories. We're looking forward to meeting up with you again, maybe in a few weeks, to talk about another project okay. that uh, you've worked on with the oils. <laughs> I'm not sure whether or not we're going to be able to talk to you about the Macarata project or whether we're going to be talking about Redneck Wonderland, but uh, we certainly are thankful that you're spending some time with us and look forward to talking to you again. That's great. Thank you very much. Yeah, you too. Yeah, thank you. And with that, it's time to say goodnight to Warren and say goodnight to you until next time when we will be listening to what we'll probably be talking. I don't know what we're going to be talking about. We, we don't know. so it many could, things. Yeah, it could be the Macarata Project. We could be talking to, about Redneck Wonderland. Yeah. Maybe not even just to warn about Redneck. It's, you know, it's really, who knows what's going to happen in the next couple weeks. But uh, we will do our best to be talking to you again soon on Comfortable Place on the Couch, a Midnight Oil podcast. How did you like me recovering from that? That was pretty good, eh? That was 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 decent. That's decent. Corrections, comments, hate mail, questions for Warren. You can send us an email at our new podcast email address oilscouch at gmail.com visit darrenfolds.com slash podcasts for any show notes we might have tweet us on the tweeter at darren the folds or robin at no no what what, what am i <laughs> you're at 8 bit show and tell right yes yeah uh tw- on twitter at eight- we know we're talking about twitter already oh, are we yes 8 bit show and tell that's all we need from you robin so <laughs> stop talking robin <laughs> 
<laughs> so for Robin Harbin, I am Darren Folds. Good night. Good night. Well, let's do our, our synchronization so that we oh, yeah. can do that later. So yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give us a one, two, three, four, and then we'll clap along after that. And then we'll do 10 seconds of silence. So one, two, three, four. Ten.